Once again, good morning, <clears throat> and I invite you to take your Bibles, and we are continuing through our study of John, and we're going to be in John chapter 2, but before I go to John chapter 2, I want to read a portion of Scripture from the book of Matthew chapter 7, just to kind of start us off this morning. So we're going to be in Luke chapter 2, uh, but we're going to start off in... Matthew chapter 7 and verse 21. This is in the middle of Jesus teaching the Sermon on the Mount. And in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is teaching principles of living in the kingdom of God. Now he's preaching this and teaching this to his disciples. However, uh, he, would, he actually preached this message, taught this message several more times than just one. And so when he would teach it, there would also be others who would hear it besides just his disciples. There would be the religious leaders of the day, the Jewish leaders of the day who despised Jesus and despised his message, though they were religious. Uh, they were people that they would have considered themselves to be people of faith. Uh, they were very religious, but they did not truly trust Jesus because they hated Jesus. And so I want to read in Matthew chapter 7 and verse 21. And here's what that says. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Depart from me. What Jesus is doing in this particular passage is he is fast forwarding to the judgment. And he is, he is revealing them, uh, revealing to them something that will take place on the day of judgment. Now, it's an amazing thing. I, I want to hear what Jesus has to say. And if you were sitting in that context that day, you would have wanted to hear what Jesus had to say. If you believe Jesus, if you believe that he was exactly who he said he was, you would also know that he had direct knowledge of the future. He had a perfect knowledge of the past. Uh, he had perfect knowledge of the present and perfect knowledge of the future. And so Jesus is not sharing his opinion about what's going to happen one day. Jesus is giving a tour of the future when he brings them to this passage. And he says, on that day, there will be many religious people. There will be many people of faith, so to speak who stands before me as their divine judge, and they're going to begin to tell me all of the things they did, maybe the sermons that they preached, or the classes that they taught, or the money that they gave to the church, or whatever it may be, and they're going to tell me all of these things that they did in my name. They were faithful to go to church. They were religious. But I will profess to them on that day, Depart from me, you worker of lawlessness, worker of iniquity. I do not know who you are. You are not one of my children. How could this be? How could it be that religious people, people who claim to be people of faith in God, would be cast into hell one day with their faith? Well, that's what we're going to talk about this morning in the book of John chapter 2. Uh, beginning in verse 23. You'll notice 
uh, we're kind of skipping a passage of Scripture, and, and we're doing that on purpose. Uh, the passage that we're skipping is verses 18 through 22, and this is dealing with the resurrection. Well, I'm just going to let you know what I'm doing. I'm going to go back and cover this on Easter Sunday. So that's what we're going to do there, but we're going to go ahead and move on for the next couple of weeks uh, in the other passages in this text. So anyway, we come now to John chapter 2 and verse 23. Now when, Jehan, now when he was in Jerusalem, now if you'll remember, he was already in Jerusalem for the feast of the Passover. This is still while he's there. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the, feast, <clears throat> at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man for he himself knew what was in man. Let's pray. Father, Lord, we come before you this morning in the precious name of Jesus. God, we are so thankful for your grace. We're so thankful for your word. But in your word, we find that it is a two-edged sword. And we ask you, we invite you to investigate our lives, to cut away what needs to be cut away. God, help us to truly see you in your word this morning. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We've been studying for some time now in the Gospel of John. Now, Jesus is, what we're seeing here is he has been doing signs. And people love to see the signs. In fact, we see in verse 23, he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast. Remember we told you that he was faithful to go to the Passover feast. He was faithful to go to any other of the feasts that he was supposed to go to because he loved the worship of God. And as we saw the last time we preached, he was zealous about the worship of God. And he didn't want people messing with the worship of God and bringing in things that they shouldn't bring uh, to the point where he overthrew the tables. He threw them out of the temple out of his father's house. He said, do not make my father's house a house of commerce. And then after that, as you put the four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John together, you see that he was doing signs. He was healing people. He was delivering people from uh, demonic possession. He was healing their physical illnesses and things of that nature. And this was drawing a crowd. And now we see that now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many people believed in his name. Well, we just stop there. We say, praise the Lord. Many people are believing in His name. Well, that's a wonderful thing. If this was a modern Southern Baptist church, we would add them to the roll. We would send it to Nashville and, and for our uh, ACP numbers. And we would have a, a boosted number in the ACP. We were glad. They were glad that these people were believing in the name of Jesus. Everything was fine. Everything was good. However, everything was not as it seemed. It says, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them. You see, what we see happening here in this text, yes, they were believing. They were, they were expressing some measure of faith in what Jesus was doing. But we see the rest of the story when it says, when they saw the signs. When they saw the signs. You see, they weren't believing in Christ as the Messiah. They were believing in Christ as a miracle worker. 
They weren't believing in Christ as the Son of God. They were believing in Christ as a magician, as someone who could do things that nobody else could do. They weren't embracing and believing Jesus as the only Savior of the world. They were believing and embracing Jesus as someone who could do uh, uh, very neat tricks that would impress them. That's all they wanted at this point in time. They were not believing in Him unto faith. Which brings us to the point of this message this morning. And here it is. Not all faith is saving faith. Not all faith is saving faith. Now, it becomes easy for us to think, well, if somebody expresses faith in Jesus, hey, they're saved. They're born again. They've been brought into the family of God. All you have to do is have faith in Christ. You come to church. Surely if you come to church and you give money every now and then, and if you act nice and dress nice and act like a good Christian, then that means you have faith in God, which means you are a child of God. But what we find in the Word of God is something very different just because you say you have faith. You remember we talked about those in Matthew chapter 7 at the judgment? They all said they had faith in Jesus. They said they did mighty works in Jesus' name. But Jesus said, I don't know who you are. I have no knowledge of you. Now we, we, we don't see that as Jesus saying that he actually didn't know who they were and uh, for he created them. Uh, he knew them in this life. What he's saying is, is you're not one of my children. You're not a part of my family. Even though you say you had faith, you never truly trusted me. I want you to notice what there's really a word play here in this text. It says that they believed in his name. And then verse 24 says this. But Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them. What does that mean? Well, the word believe, they believed on him is a certain... Uh, you see the Bible, the New Testament was written originally in Greek. And so they use Greek words to describe certain things. The word for believed there, and we don't always, in the English, translate it the same word. Sometimes we translate it in different ways to show you different aspects about it. But this is the same word. This word believe in verse 23 and the word entrusted in verse 24 is the same word. Believe and entrusted is the same word. So what it's telling us is they believed in Jesus, but Jesus didn't believe in them. They entrusted Jesus, but Jesus didn't entrust them. So what it was, this was a one-sided thing, and they, they weren't wanting Him as their Lord and Savior. They were just wanting what looked good about Jesus. They were wanting what was entertaining about Jesus. They didn't want someone to rule their lives. They didn't want someone to change their sinful desires. That's not at all what they were looking for. They were looking for someone who would entertain them for a little while or help them in their personal needs, and then that would be all. He could back away after that. So what we see here is not all faith is saving faith. It's important not to get those two things confused. We're really going to look at two points here this morning and try to unpack these two points from the text. First of all, on this part, that he did not entrust himself to them. That's the first thing we're going to look at. And then we're going to look at uh, that he knew what was in man. He did not entrust himself to them because he knew what was in man. So first of all, he did not entrust himself to them. As we've already said, they believed in him, but he didn't believe in them. They, they entrusted him, but he didn't entrust them. So what this means is that they weren't really saved. They did not believe unto salvation. They had not trusted Christ with their lives. 
They only wanted a little bit of what he had to offer. And in this, I think we see some examples in the Bible of other people doing such things as this. That's going to help us to, to open this up to us a little bit more. First of all, I want to talk about a man named Simon. No, not Peter. A, a, a man named Simon who was first introduced to us in the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 8 to be exact. In Acts chapter 8 verse 9. Now this is when the Peter and John are going about and beginning to preach the gospel. And people are hearing the gospel. And many of them are trusting Christ for the first time in the Gentile world. And in surrounding areas. But anyway we see in verse 9 of Acts chapter 8 we see this man Simon. But there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him for, uh, from the least to the greatest, saying, This man is the power of God called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. But, the, but when they believed uh, Philip, this is after Philip had preached the gospel, but when they believed Philip as he preached the good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women, even Simon. Now notice that. Even Simon himself believed. And after being baptized, he continued with Philip and seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit, uh, for he had not yet fallen on any of them, and they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Verse 17, Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of, hand, uh, laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Spirit. Now notice Peter's immediate reaction. Verse 20, But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you. Now that word perish uh, isn't just a physical word. That is a spiritual word. You know, whoever believes on him may not perish. Well, that's the same word here. So, Peter is speaking of eternal judgment. Now, it's already said he believed. He believed in Christ. But now Peter says he is going to perish. Because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter. For your heart is not right with God. So... We see here in this first example where Jesus, again we're under the point where Jesus doesn't always entrust himself to people even though they're people of faith. Simon here, he was a wonder worker. He was able by somehow to really deceive the people and make them think he had certain powers and all of that. But then one day somebody came with a new message in town about Jesus and that they could be saved from their sins. And, and, and Simon thought it was a good idea because everybody else was doing it. So he wanted to uh, keep a good reputation up with the crowd. So he believed on this Jesus as well. But then he saw the really amazing thing. Peter and John, who are apostles, they came to town and they began to do wonderful works. That they laid hands on somebody. And this is the book of Acts, a, trans a transitional book. Uh, but when we receive Christ as our Savior, we receive the Spirit as well today. Uh, but in this time, this was right after all of this was happening. After the Spirit first came down on the day of Pentecost. 
And uh, so still at this point, there's a couple of more times when you would have to see the apostles laying their hands on people to receive the Spirit. But anyway, so, so what we see here is, is Simon witnessed this. He saw what took place. He saw Peter lay his hand on someone and this person was filled with the Holy Spirit and they were able to begin to prophesy and things like that, much like they did on the day of Pentecost. Well, Simon said, that's impressive. And that's so impressive that I want what he has. I want to be able to do what Peter does. If they, I didn't realize that this Jesus character would give you all these powers. So I want that. So he went to Peter and John. He said, I will give you money if you will give me the ability to do what you just did. So here was Simon's thing. Simon expressed faith for self-gain. That's the only reason he expressed faith in this new figure, Jesus. Because he thought Jesus could help boost his ministry. He thought Jesus could help boost his business. And so he wanted all that Jesus had to offer. He was even willing to pay money to the apostles so that he could maintain this this, uh, rapport he had with the crowd because he had amazed the people with his tricks and with his abilities. And so uh, he wanted this continue and he wanted to grow even more. And so he wanted Jesus for personal gain, for self-gain. As a problem, that's not what Jesus is here to do. And Peter knew that. And Peter said, may your money perish with you. You are not right with God. So, uh, this is was Simon's problem. He thought he could get more. He thought he could get more money. He thought he could get more of a following by trusting this Jesus character. Well, you know, today there is something we see going around. It's huge called the prosperity gospel. You, sometimes you hear it in certain songs. Sometimes you hear, you hear it a lot as you listen to TV evangelists. That if you'll just come to Jesus, if you'll, or if you'll give money to this ministry, if you'll do what I tell you to do, then God will bless your life. God will make uh, where everything's always positive. If there's sickness, you can rebuke the sickness. If you have a bad day, you can rebuke the bad day. Because you don't ever have to have a bad day when you come to Jesus. And we call this the prosperity gospel. Health, wealth, and prosperity. Name it and claim it. Whatever you... uh, Hey, as long as you speak it... I've even heard these men say things like this. When you step out of the house on a day, don't say anything negative about the day. Because with your own words, you can speak a bad day into existence. Because in your mouth there is the power of God. Because when God saved you, He put His power in your mouth. So make sure you only say positive things. Say, I'm going to have a good day today. I'm going to be happy today. I'm going to make a lot of money today. I'm not going to get sick today. And so that's what they tell their followers to do. And I know we see this in America, but when you go over to the other nations, You go to Africa, you go to India, and you see what the prosperity gospel is doing to those people. It is devastating. Because the little bit that those people have, the very little that they have, they are giving it all to these these false teachers. They are ravishing the, 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 the third world nations. I've been down to Honduras and I've seen it there where these, these, these prosperity preachers, they come in and, and they basically they, they take everything from the people. Because if you'll plant your seed in this ministry, God will bless you. You want to get rich? You need to give. You want God to give you more? 
You need to give him more through me, his servant. That's exactly what Simon was doing. Simon believed that if he came to Christ, Simon believed that if he expressed faith in Christ, then his world would would grow. He would get more money. He would get more followers. And that's what he believed. But Peter quickly rebuked that thought, didn't he? He said, you're going to perish. That means you're going to go to hell. You're not saved. You're not right with God. The the faith that you expressed, you were not truly trusting in Jesus. Your faith was not saving faith. And it's proof by what you think about the kingdom of God that you think it's this tool that's going to help you get rich. So that's what the apostle Peter said about the prosperity gospel. And I think it's the same thing we see today. Be careful. I say this lovingly to you. Be careful what you listen to. Be careful who you watch on the TV because a lot of the times it is this and it it comes so subtly at times and sometimes it's in your face but sometimes it's so subtle. We need to be careful of what we allow ourselves to hear doctrinally because doctrine is important and the prosperity gospel is a false gospel. Here's one another thing that they teach. They teach that the atonement, the atonement is Jesus coming and dying on the cross for our sins. We know that when Jesus came and died on the cross for our sins, that he paid uh, the, the, the debt for our sins. Well, here's what the prosperity gospel says. He, he didn't only pay for the debt for our sins. He also paid for you to be healthy and wealthy. That the promises, just as sure as we can come to Jesus and receive forgiveness of sins, we can come to Jesus and receive wealth. We can come to Jesus and never have to get sick again. Hey, that sounds good. And it's deceptive, but it's not true. The Bible does not tell us that that's what happens. In fact, we see the exact opposite. A lot of the times in the Bible, when you see people expressing true faith in Christ, a lot of times their life gets pretty bad. That's when troubles come. Uh, That's when trials come. And so anyway, we need to understand that that is not the promises that God gives us. Yes, we have promises of that in the next world. There will be no sickness in heaven. There will be no pains in heaven. There, because there will be no sin in heaven. And Jesus is the light. But don't be expecting that on this side because you're going to find yourself disillusioned. It's not what God promises. So Simon was lost. Even though he expressed faith in Jesus, all faith is not saving faith. But number two, what I want us to look at under this same point of Jesus not uh, uh, entrusting himself to them, I want us to look at a second example from Jesus' own disciples named Judas. You remember Judas? Judas was uh, a disciple of Christ. He was called just like the other disciples were called. He was uh, called one day by Jesus and he began to follow Jesus. He spent three to three and a half years with Christ, heard the same messages, witnessed the same miracles. He saw everything that Jesus, that, that Jesus did and he was there the entire time. You have Peter, James, John, uh, Matthew and all of these who would go on to write scripture because they uh, were, were, were changed by the power of Christ. But here's Judas. Judas came to Christ for another reason. Simon came to Christ for self-gain. Judas came to Christ to save face. You see, Judas wanted people to believe he was something different than what he was. Judas wanted people to believe that he was holy when he was hellish. Judas wanted people to believe that he was saved when in fact he was lost. 
Well, there's proof in the Scripture of this. Remember when, Jesus, when the Bible describes all of the disciples on several occasions? It tells us all of their names and then it names Judas last. And it said, and Judas was he who would betray Christ. Jesus himself said, I have chosen twelve of you and one of you is a devil. Jesus knew exactly who Judas was. Jesus, Jesus knew exactly what Judas would do. Judas had everybody in the world fooled. But he didn't have Christ fooled. You see, Judas looked the part. He, he looked the part. Uh, what, if we're going to find someone to take care of the money, we're not going to find someone with this terrible track record of stealing money. We're not going to find someone with this terrible track record of being a criminal and cheating people out of their money all the time. That's exactly who I want to be our treasurer. Well, that's not who they would have chosen. They chose Judas because Judas looked the part. Judas looked good. Judas seemed to be trustworthy. Everything seemed to be going right. Everything seemed to be going good. And that was exactly what Judas wanted them to think. He wanted them to think he looked good. He wanted them to think he was holy. He wanted them to think that he was spiritual and had faith. But in reality what was going on, if you go to one of the stories where a lady brought uh, an expensive box of perfume and broke it and poured it on Jesus' feet. You remember that? Uh, and, and, And the aroma filled the room. And Jesus, Jesus accepted this woman's worship. Judas spoke up. Remember what he said? He said, this is a disgrace. Why is this woman wasting this expensive box by, by breaking it and pouring on Jesus' feet? We could have taken and sold this money and with that money fed the poor. That's what we could have done. Oh, that was so spiritual, Judas. Oh, that was such a holy thing to say, Judas. Thank God for people like Judas. The other disciples would have said. But here's what the scripture tells us. Just after that. But Judas really didn't want the money for the poor. Judas, Because Judas from time to time would take money from the, uh, the money bag of the disciples. He would take it for himself. Now, in public, Judas looked holy. In public, Judas looked good. In public, Judas was a man of faith and a good upstanding man in the community. But in private, when nobody else would see him. When nobody else knew, Judas was wicked and Judas was wretched. He was a thief. He was a criminal. He was a liar. He hated Jesus. He hated everything Jesus stood for. But nobody knew that. All people... Judas Judas was good deacon material. Hey, Judas was good pastor material the way we see pastors today. So it seemed on the outside. But on the inside, in his heart of hearts, Judas was lost. All faith is not saving faith. All faith is not saving faith. So we see in this text, many believed in his name when they saw the signs. When they saw the signs, they wanted to see the the great things God could do. We spoke of the prosperity gospel. There's a quote I want to read to you here before we move on to the next point. From David Platt. He says, the good news of Jesus is not that He will save us from our sickness. Now, the good news of Jesus is not that He will save us from our sickness now, but that He will save us from our sins forever. You see, a lot of times we want to make the good news of Christ about the good things He'll do for us now. But the good news of Christ is about what He does on the inside. And the good news of Christ is about what He does in eternity. And so we do not need to be deceived by those like Simon or those like Judas who are people of faith, who seem to be so religious, 
yet they did not know Christ at all. So we see that Christ did not entrust himself to him. But we're going to look at the second point for just a few minutes. And that is this. He knew what was in man. That's what the scripture tells us. Verse 25. He needed no one to bear witness about man. He needed no one to tell him anything about man. For he himself knew what was in man. Well, what was, what was in man? See, Jesus knew very, very precisely, very clearly. He knew what was in man. And he knew that man had a sin nature. Man had a sin nature. In fact, we, we read a little bit about this sin nature in the book of Ephesians chapter 2. In Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 1, here's what the Bible says. And you were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work, and the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath as the rest of mankind. That is our nature. You were born with it. You and I were born sinners. We weren't born perfect angels. We were born in a sinful nature. Now, we wouldn't be able to express that sinful nature to its fullest extent until later. There would come a day when we would understand right and wrong. We would be accountable for our sins. But we were all born under the curse of sin. Because Adam sinned in the garden. And Eve sinned in the garden. And they had a son who was born named Cain. And he was a sinner. And then their grandchildren were sinners. Their great-grandchildren were sinners. All the way to us today. And Jesus knew that about all men and about all people. That we have a sin nature. You go from the time of Cain where Cain murdered his brother Abel you fast forward some years ahead of that and you see a world of Cain's you see one Cain because there's only one but then you go into the time of Noah in Genesis chapter 6 the Bible says that everyone everyone was evil and only violence was on their minds at all times so as many people as were born that's how many Cain's there were they were all wicked they were all violent they were all murderous and we see the depths of the sin nature taking hold on people to the point where God wiped everybody off the earth except Noah and his family but then you see the cycle continues the cycle continues where people continue to sin. Nations rise up against other nations. Uh, and, and, and people hate one another. Even God's own chosen people continuously go into idolatry. They have seen the mighty works of God that He had done. Yet they still served other gods much of the time. You see the effects of sin on the lives of people all throughout the Old Testament and into the New Testament. We understand this all the way up to today. We are sinners. But not only Christ knew the condition of our heart that we're sinners, He knew the effects of that condition. He knew the disease, but He also knew uh, how far it went. He knew the symptoms. He knew what the extent of that disease would do. He knew that man would never truly believe until they were born again. You see, this text, these three verses, this is an introduction is what it is. You know, a lot of times we look at the Bible and we see chapter 1, John chapter 2, John chapter 3. Well, chapter 2 has nothing to do with chapter 3. Well, that's not the case here. In fact, they didn't add the numbers in the Bible until later. When the Bible was written, it wasn't divided by numbers. So, verses 23 through 25 is an introduction to chapter 3. You see, Jesus 
He didn't entrust Himself to the people even though they were religious. Jesus knew what was in man. He knew what was coming next. And we'll talk about this more in depth next week. A man named Nicodemus would come who was a man who was very religious. But Jesus explained the problem, His own problem to him. He said, Nicodemus, you'll never see the kingdom of God until you're born again. It doesn't matter how much faith you say you have. It doesn't matter how many religious practices you perfect. It doesn't matter how much money you give to the poor or to your religion. It doesn't matter because there's a problem and you have a problem in your heart. You're lost. And that lostness affects you so greatly that you will never trust in, you will never seek the salvation for your soul until I open your eyes to it. That's what he was telling Nicodemus in the next chapter. But this is an introduction showing us that he knows man perfectly. And he knows that man is sinful. And we are going to be, it's going to be revealed to us in chapter 3 just what has to be done in order to be saved. And it's nothing that you can add to salvation. It's nothing that I can add to salvation. We must depend on Christ. You see, that wording is interesting. Remember that word play that we saw where they believed in Him, but He didn't entrust Himself to them? That's what it means to believe in Him truly, is to entrust, to entrust our lives to Him. Lord Jesus, if I try to make it on my own, if I try to live a life of works and of religion, I'm still going to go to hell. I'm still going to suffer the wrath of God for all of eternity. I need something else outside of myself. You do not have the power or the ability in yourself to save yourself. You need to depend on an outside power. And Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes unto the Father but by me. We must look to Jesus. This same group of people that we're reading about in John chapter 2 who are believing in Him, you can read more about them in John chapter 6. In John chapter 6, Jesus is teaching some hard things. Jesus is explaining some hard truths that they don't want to hear. Now this crowd has continued to grow and grow and grow. Some of them are true disciples, most of them are not. And we're going to find the proof of that here. Jesus is teaching some hard truths. Then we get to verse 60 of John chapter 6. When many of the disciples heard it, they said, This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, Do you take offense at this? Then what if, I were to, what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is of no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. Now, now they were followers of Christ. They were self-proclaimed disciples of Christ. They said they believed, but here's what Jesus said. You don't believe in me. You think you believe in me, but you don't believe in me. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray Him. And He said, This is why I told you that no one can come to Me unless it is granted Him by the Father. Notice verse 66. After this, many of the disciples turned back and no longer followed, walked with Him. That means they abandoned Him. They no longer followed Him. They no longer walked with Him. They abandoned Him. They were unbelievers. Now this was, this was a very 
um, vocal group. They followed Jesus everywhere He went. They, they proclaimed that they trusted Christ. They loved to see the miracles. They did everything that the other disciples did, except they did not stay because they did not truly believe. So then verse 67, So Jesus said to the twelve, Do you want to go away also? And here's what Simon Peter said. He answered him and says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. So the other disciples, the false disciples, the ones who said they believed but didn't truly believe, they left. But the true disciple says, where else can we go, Jesus? Even if you say troubling words, even if you say hard sayings, who else are we going to go to because you have the words of eternal life? So we see this. Jesus knew exactly what was in their heart. I want to end like this. We began in Matthew chapter 7, verse uh, 21. We began there. We're going to end there. I want us to go back in our minds and remember what Jesus said. Many will profess to me on that day. Lord, Lord, have we not done many wonderful works in your name? People of faith, religious people, pastors, deacons, Sunday school teachers. The best of the best, so it seemed. These were church leaders who he's talking about. But that I will profess to them on that day. Depart from me. We don't like to see Jesus in this light. Depart from me. Today's English. Get away from me. Get away from me. I don't know who you are. Where's grace? Well, grace had been extended for years and years. But they rejected it. They lived under a disguise of faith. They, they followed as long as it was convenient. They followed as long as they were getting what they wanted. And they followed as long as they could disguise their true sinful nature. But they never embraced Christ. The Lord has called me here to Salem Baptist Church to pastor this church. There is coming a day. The Bible tells me this. The, the, the apostles say this. There is coming a day when I will stand before God and give an account of how I pastored this church. That's not maybe. I'm going to, I am going to stand before the Lord of creation one day and going to have to give an account of whether I was truthful with you. If I preach the truth to you. And I want to be able to stand on that day with a clear conscience. I want you to understand that just because you had a feeling at one time in your life, just because you had a religious experience does not make you a Christian. Just because you come to church every now and then does not make you a Christian. Just because you look Christian doesn't make you a believer in Christ. There will be many religious people stand before the judge of the universe and be cast into hell when he says, Get away from me. I don't know you. Where will you be on that day? Where will you be? Will you be accepted into heaven? Not because you are religious, but because you are a child of God by faith alone. You trusted in the finished work of Christ on Calvary. You were a follower of Jesus. Or will you be told to get away from God? To get away from Jesus because you were never His child. Because you didn't truly trust Christ. You trusted Christ for what you could get, but not trust Him. What will happen with you on that day? Will you truly, will you enter into His paradise? I'm here to tell you, 
that many religious people, maybe some from this very church, sitting in this congregation today, will hear Jesus say, get away from me. I hope not. I hope not. I hope that you trust Christ as your Savior. I hope that you, you repent from your sins and you embrace Jesus as your Lord and Savior. Because if you do not, you have grace today. You have mercy today. You have time today. But there's coming a day when you'll look into the eyes of a God who has no more mercy for you. No more grace for you. Only wrath. Only wrath. Yes, the Bible teaches us of a loving God and He is so loving. The fact that we're not in hell today tells us that He's loving. But He invites us to repent of our sins and to trust Him. But if you don't do that, then you will not meet Him one day in a good setting. You will meet Him in His wrath because He hates sin and all sin must be punished. All sin must be punished. Don't play church. Don't play a Christian. Be a Christian. Be a part of the church. Be a believer in Christ. Let's pray together. Father, once again, good morning. And I invite you to take your Bibles with me and turn to the Gospel of John chapter 3. The Gospel of John chapter 3. We have come now to a uh, very familiar portion of Scripture in our study through the Gospel of John. If, if I asked for people to just quote a verse in the Bible that you just know from heart, I'm sure many of us would quote John 3.16. It is a uh, precious verse to us. It is a very memorable verse to us. And that for good reason, speaking of God's love, and He loved us in this way that He gave His own Son. So, we are going to begin looking at the first verses of John chapter 3. We're going to try to go through verse 15 this morning. And then as we said next Sunday, we're going to backtrack a little bit into chapter 2. Uh, and look at verses 18 through 22, speaking of the resurrection, before we move on in John chapter 3 the following week. Uh, we did that because of Easter. But anyway, we're going to look this morning at John chapter 3. We're going to begin reading in verse 1. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God. For no one can do these things, these signs that you do, unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit." Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered him, 
Are you a teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know, and bear witness of what we have seen. But you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things, and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from, the, from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Let's pray. Father, we come before you this morning in the name of Jesus, and we ask now that you would add your blessings to the reading of the word, and it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. As we look at John chapter 3, over the past couple of weeks as I've been uh, starting these texts, I try to kind of give a, uh, a statement, an opening statement that is a good description of the text we're about to read. Last week, uh, in the text we read in the last part of John chapter 2, was all faith is not saving faith. Well, as I was looking at the text that we've read this morning of what and thinking about what would be a good um, explanation, a good uh, statement of explanation that we could understand the the, 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 under, the the gist of this text, really I think we can find it in one of the verses of the text itself, which is verse 3. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So this text is about the new birth. And understanding what that means, it is about salvation. What we find here is a man who comes asking questions. And what we're going to talk about basically is the three questions that he asked. Uh, as we look at that, first of all, is the unasked question. Number two, the question of for understanding. And number three, the question of unbelief. The, the unasked question the question for understanding, and the question of unbelief. These are the three questions he presented to Christ. But if you remember the text last week, what we said was that it was an introduction, an introduction to John chapter 3. When these people came to Jesus, and it said many people were believing in his signs. They were believing in him because of his signs. They wanted to see what Jesus could do. They wanted to see what Jesus could bring to the table. They, have, they had seen him um, give the blind sight, uh, give the deaf hearing, even raise the dead. What is the next big thing that Jesus is going to do? And they were believing in him because of his signs. Now it goes on to explain that Jesus, even though they believed in him, Jesus did not believe in them. Even though they were entrusting in what he did, Jesus did not entrust himself to them because he knew their hearts. He knew that the only thing that they were not interested in having a relationship with him. They were not interested in Jesus becoming their Savior and Lord. They were interested in what entertaining things he might do. What miraculous works he might uh, perform next so that we can see and we can be excited. And then let's move on to the next best thing. And, and these people, as the scriptures describe, they were unbelievers. Even though they believed, they were unbelievers because they did not trust Christ as their Savior where we get the statement, all faith is not saving faith. Well, here we have one of these people by name. It told us that there was a group of people who were doing this, and now it names one of these people, the, the man Nicodemus in chapter 3. 
Now, in verse 1, Now there was a man from the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you, that you do unless God is with him. I want to introduce you to this man named Nicodemus. I want to tell you pretty much three things about this man before we enter into the next parts of the text. First of all, he was a religious man. He was a man of religion. Now, how we know that because it tells us he was a Pharisee. A Pharisee. Now, the, the people of Israel were still kind of, they were ruled on a, on a wider uh, view by Rome itself. But when Rome would come over and take over a nation, a lot of the times they would allow that nation to maintain their own government as long as it didn't go against Rome. Now they would tax them and they would do things like that. But they would allow them to keep their culture intact. They would allow them to keep their basic language intact, their customs intact, their religion intact, so that they would remain happy and not try to revolt against Rome. And so anyway, that's what's going on here. And so Nicodemus is one such man and he's a leader in their religion. He is a Pharisee. Now, if there, there were several different religious groups in Israel during this time, just like there are today. We have Baptists, we have Catholics, we have Presbyterians, Methodists, Pentecostal, uh, just as many as you can think of. We have, we have a faith, we have a denomination for it. Well, they had several different belief systems, and one was those of the Pharisees. Another was those of Sadducees. Now, what set Sadducees apart from the Pharisees, Pharisees would have been the more conservative, the theologically conservative group. They believed the Bible literally, the Old Testament literally. The Sadducees didn't believe it quite as literal. In fact, when they would speak of angels, they would speak of uh, heaven or things of that nature, they didn't believe that that was real. They believed, the Sadducees believed, that we should keep the law as best we could. But when it comes to the afterlife, there was no afterlife. When you die, you die. And you're, you are there, you have no more existence. You go out into darkness. There is nothing after you die, so we better make things count on this time because this is all we get. There is no afterlife. Well, the Pharisees disagreed greatly with that because, as I said, they believed the scriptures were literal. So when the Bible talked about angels, or when the Bible talked about heaven, or when the Bible talked about the afterlife, they believed it. So that's why we would say they were more conservative religiously. And they, were all, they also had the heart of the people. The people liked what they said better. And so the people kind of sided with them. That didn't diminish the uh, influence of the Sadducees. There were still many people that followed them. But the Pharisees were the main sect of the people. There were also others, um, people who, I'm trying to remember the name of it right now. Uh, they, they, they would go and they would, they, as the Pharisees, they believed the, the scriptures were literal. But they didn't live life in public. <laughs> they, didn't, they only came uh, maybe to buy supplies. They stayed in the wilderness. They lived in the caves. That was what they did. So that was another religious group at the time. But anyway, this is about the Pharisees. We see that Nicodemus was a Pharisee, so he was religious. And you would think if someone was religious, if somebody had some sort of a faith in God, and it would be described as uh, theologically conservative, well, these were the guys who were on the right track. These were the ones who you need to follow. These were the ones who you needed to respect. But we see that Christ is going to have a different opinion of them as the text unfolds. Well, first of all, uh, Nicodemus was a religious man. The second thing, Nicodemus was a man of authority. It says there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. Now this probably means one thing when it says a ruler of the Jews. Uh, because they had their own uh, legal system, they had their own 
um, political system. If you were a leader of the Jews, that meant you sat on the Jewish Sanhedrin. This was a group of 70 men, somewhat similar to what we would consider a Congress or an assembly of that nature. But they had 70 men that sat on the Jewish Sanhedrin and they judged the people. They, 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 uh, they made sure that the religious laws were kept. And if you did something wrong, they would punish you for it. If you did things right, they would reward you for it. This was the ruling class, the Sanhedrin. And Nicodemus was a part of the Jewish Sanhedrin. So he was a man of influence. And with his religion and with his influence, he was also a man of knowledge. He knew things. He tells Jesus, he says, we know that you are a man come from God. We know things about you. He knew things about the Old Testament. He knows things about political life. He knew things about Jesus. But we see also he was a man with questions. So he was a religious man. He was a man of authority, and he was a man with questions. And we, what we see here, and I'm going to set the stage for you, this man comes to Jesus at night. Now, a lot of people have speculated as to why he chose night. And generally what people say is he came at night uh, because he was embarrassed or to protect himself because most of the Jewish Sanhedrin and surely most of the Pharisees were totally against Jesus and wanted to see him die. So uh, for Nicodemus to put himself out there in this way was to go against what uh, his, uh, what his uh, friends were doing and they might have something to say so he went at night. Well, the Bible doesn't exactly say that. We can assume that and there's nothing wrong with that. We don't know exactly why he went at night. All we know is he went at night. He could have went tonight to escape the crowds because people were constantly flocking around Jesus. That could have been why he went at night. But I don't think it's necessarily against the scripture to assume that he went there to avoid um, uh, criticism. So anyway, we see he went to Jesus at night. He was a Pharisee. He was religious. He was a ruler. And we see him coming to Jesus with his questions. This brings us to the body of our message, which is three questions concerning the new birth. Three questions concerning the new birth. Now, the first question, as I've already told you, is the unasked question. Now you say, how in the world can you have an unasked question? How can someone answer an unasked question? Well, here's why and here's how. Because Jesus knew what was in people's hearts. Jesus knew exactly what people were thinking and what they really felt and what they were saying in their minds and their hearts. They didn't even have to voice it. He allowed them to voice it much of the time, but they didn't have to. And here's how we know this. Because Jesus answers a question when none was asked, at least not verbally. So what we see here uh, in verse 2 is this man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God be with them. So again, just agreeing with the end of chapter 2, he said, because of your signs, we think you're a pretty good guy. Because of your signs, we're very interested in you, and we want to know some things about you. And then Jesus answers a specific question. He doesn't even address what Nicodemus has said. He doesn't say, well, thank you, Nicodemus. I sure appreciate that you think I'm a good guy and that you think I'm a good teacher. You, you didn't even have to call me a teacher because most of the Pharisees would never have called Jesus a teacher because they didn't respect him as a teacher. Well, you've called me a teacher and I thank you for that. And you said that I must be come from God, so I thank you for that. Jesus didn't say any of those things. Jesus answered a question. So it's upon us to figure out what the question was. And I believe that we can know what the question was, or at least know basically what the question was, by the answer Jesus gave. So we come to verse 3. 
Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, and this is something you're going to see several times in this passage and even throughout the Gospel of John, truly, truly. This is getting someone's attention. They didn't just say truly. They said truly, truly because they wanted you to really pay attention. This was the Jewish person's way of, of really bringing you. Now, listen to me very closely. Don't, don't let your mind be drifting. Truly, truly. Um, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So Jesus answers this question. He answers how a person can go to heaven. How a person can enter into the kingdom of God. So the question, the unasked question that Nicodemus was thinking or was asking in his heart was how in the world can a person know they're going to be in the kingdom? Because that's the question Jesus answers. And he answers this way, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom. He cannot see. Now later on he's going to say he cannot enter the kingdom. He says right now, and I think this is for a purpose, he cannot see the kingdom. This is a word of, 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 of visualizing, but it's also a word of understanding. You see what I'm saying? It's a word to make sure you understand. And what Jesus is telling Nicodemus is unless you are completely changed, unless you are a complete new person, Unless you aren't, the word he used, the phrase he used, unless you are born again, you can't even understand the kingdom of God. You can't see it. You can't perceive it. You don't even know it's there. You don't truly believe these things. You are not a part of it. You'll definitely not enter into it, but you cannot understand the kingdom of God. Now, Nicodemus was a man, again, of religion. He was a man of influence. He was a man of knowledge. This may have offended him. Of course, if anybody could understand the kingdom of God, surely it wasn't this Jewish carpenter who never went to a, 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 a Jewish Bible school in his life. Couldn't, his parents couldn't afford to send him to a seminary of the day. So if anybody could understand the kingdom of God, it would have been someone like Nicodemus. And who is this Jewish carpenter telling him, you've got to become a completely different person. You have to be born again. What does this mean? Why would he tell me this? He said, I cannot see it. I cannot understand it. And that's exactly. Excuse me, that's exactly what Jesus said, is you cannot see, you cannot understand the kingdom of God. Here's what the Bible tells us elsewhere, that the natural man does not receive the things that are of God because they are spiritually discerned. Now, we're going to see more of this, but if you remember in chapter 2, uh, verse 25, he, need, he did not need them to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. What do we say was in man? It's the sin nature. Every person, this doesn't just have to be a male, every person who has ever been born had, was born with a sin nature except Jesus. Now, again, you go back to Adam and Eve created in the garden. They chose to sin. Sin infected their race. They became sinners. And then the first child that was born was Cain. What did Cain do? Cain killed his brother. And then you can just trace it on from there where everybody who was born was born... Uh, distorted and cursed by sin. That is what is in man. And that is the reason that Nicodemus cannot see the kingdom of God. Yes, he's religious. Yes, he's high in society. And yes, he's well educated. But none of those things means anything when it comes to understanding the kingdom because the kingdom is spiritual. 
And so Jesus answers the question, here's how you go to heaven. Here's how you understand the things that are of God. It's by becoming a different person, by being born again. That's the first question. That's the unasked question. But then we move to number two, the question for understanding. This intrigued. There may have been some offense here. We'll see that coming out later. But there was also intrigue. There was also interest there that, that, that we see coming from Nicodemus. So he says in verse 4, Nicodemus said unto him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, there it is again. I say to you, unless one is born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. So we see the second question. And the second question is... Uh, piggybacking off the first question, well, how in the world is it possible for a person to be born again? Can I go back and enter into the womb of my mother and then be reborn? Is it some type of reincarnation? Am I, do I have to live my life as a man and then die? And once I die, be born as another person or something else and be born again? Is that what it is? No, it's none of those things. And Jesus answers this question, but he asks the question. He doesn't understand. He's trying to make it natural. He's trying to ask, can I biologically, can I physically become a child once again and go back into the womb of my mother? Is that what it's all about? You see, he's trying to figure it out with his mind. He's trying to figure it out with his understanding. And that's exactly what Jesus already told him in the first place that he could not do. This is not something that you can understand, Nicodemus. This is not something you can figure out on your own. This is not a natural process. It's not natural. It's theological. It's not natural. It's supernatural. It's a work of God. We, we uh, read behind scientists and hear what they say and hear their theories. And scientists, many of them will say, well, there's absolutely no way that um, something could just be spoken into existence. There had to have been something there that caused this, that caused this, that caused this, so on and so forth. However, we agree with science up to a point. Where science diverts from God. We do believe that something caused something. And that something was God. That someone was God. That God said let there be and there was. We don't believe this because we can go back and look at it through a microscope. We don't believe this because there was a video re uh, recording of it. We don't believe it because of those things. We believe it by faith. It's something that is supernatural, not natural. It's something that is uh, 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 spiritual, not physical. So salvation cannot be boiled down to facts. Salvation cannot be boiled down to scientific fact. Salvation cannot be boiled down to man's natural understanding. We can't see it. We can't understand it. We can't enter it in that way because it is spiritual. It's something that can only be done by God. And Jesus answers this question. How can a man be born when he is old? Here's what Jesus says in verse 5. Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Now, this is a verse that has brought much debate. What in the world is Jesus talking about unless one is born of water and of the Spirit? There have been a couple of different assumptions here. One is that it's talking about physical birth and spiritual birth. You have to be born of water, that's physical. You also have to be born of the Spirit, that's spiritual. So if you're born of, 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 of physically and born spiritually, reborn, then, you can be, then, then you're saved. I don't think that's what he was saying because that, that kind of does away with maybe children in the womb who have not yet been born. 
who have not went through that process. I don't think that that would deny other scripture in the Bible. So what else could it be saying? Well, there's other people who say this. Born of water is baptism and born of spirit is salvation. And so when you have baptism coming along with our faith in Christ, then we're born again and we, enter, we can enter in the kingdom of God. The problem with that is, is we don't find in Scripture where the Bible adds baptism to the process of being saved or becoming a believer. Uh, in fact, the Bible teaches the opposite of that. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the Father but by me. Uh, uh, he said, I, he told us time and time again that there is no other way. Uh, there's one name given under heaven whereby men must be saved. The name Christ Jesus. Uh, Paul says in the book of Ephesians, salvation is by grace uh, through faith in Christ. That's what the Bible says. That's what Paul was teaching. It's not of works lest we should boast. Baptism is a work that we can do. Baptism is something that we can see, we can feel, we can touch. And so, therefore, it is not something that saves us spiritually because it's physical. So it can't be baptism, again, because it disagrees with Scripture. So what, is, what does it mean to be born of water and to be born of the Spirit? Well, what the Bible tells us time and time again in the Old Testament and in the New Testament that salvation is a cleansing. It has a cleansing effect. When we come to Christ and we confess our sins to Him, we repent. And he washed, the Bible talks about being washed with the water of the Word. That is the water, I believe, that He is speaking about here because it agrees with Scripture. And so what we see here is that when we come to Christ, there is a cleansing, there is a washing, there is a renewing. That he washes us spiritually with the water of the word. Jesus told the woman at the well, which we're going to look at later on in John chapter 4, that if you would receive the water of life, you would never thirst again. That, that I am the water of life. And when you drink of this water, there will be wells of water springing up within your belly and coming out. And you'll never thirst again. It's a spiritual thing, but it's water. And so anyway, we see that the water is cleansing. We need to be washed. We need to be cleansed from our filth and our sin because we do live in this sin nature. And the Bible is very clear that sin will not be in the presence of God because God will always judge sin. God will always condemn sin. Sin will not enter into heaven. It stops at the door. It will be destroyed. So there must be a cleansing prior to that. So that's being born of water. But then what does it mean to be born of the Spirit? Well, I think we can understand this based on this text and again other texts that, that talks about being baptized in the Holy Spirit or with the Holy Spirit. That is a spiritual process where we're brought into the kingdom of God. That is again, going back to what we've already been saying, not a physical process, it's a spiritual process. That's where the Holy Spirit comes and takes residence in our hearts. That's what he does. It's not a work of that we can do. It's not a baptism that we can submit to. It's not money that we can give to a church. It's not a denomination we can join. Salvation is only by faith alone, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And so it is a spiritual work where we uh, become a part of the body of Christ. And that is a mysterious, that is a spiritual happening. And so that's why Jesus said, he was answering, say, it's not a physical birth. It's not about you becoming a child and getting younger and younger and younger until you become an infant and then enter back into your mother's room and then are reborn. It's not physical. It's spiritual. It's, it's not something that you're going to have to do. It's something that I'm going to do for you. And so he answers this question, but then he moves on uh, to give further explanation 
in verse 7. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. And he's going to give an example now. And this is a good example. This is a, of course, it's a good example Jesus gave it. But this is a good example because it's showing us, uh, giving an example of how we can see something, yet not see it. The wind. Did you, did any of you, it was a windy day yesterday. Did any of you just sit outside and watch the wind? Did you watch what was happening yesterday? As Even when it got later in the evening, before it was really storming or anything, you saw the, you saw the trees swaying. You saw leaves blowing. Whatever it was, whatever the wind was catching, it was carrying with it. Well, notice what Jesus said here. He said, the wind blows where it wishes. And you hear it sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Here's what Jesus is saying. is, is When you're born of the Spirit, this is how you understand it. You can see its effects, but you can't see it. How many of you watched the wind yesterday? Well, you didn't see the wind. You, you can look all you want. You're never going to see the wind because it's invisible. But you do see the effects of the wind. You see, the again, the leaves blowing, the sweet, the, <laughs> the trees sway. I just put two words together there. Anyway, we see this taking place, and uh, we see the effects of the wind, but it's not something that you can just look at. It's something that you know is happening because of the effects. Well, that's what the work of the Spirit does in our hearts. We can see a changed life. We may can't see the Holy Spirit entering a person, but we can see someone who they loved their sin, they loved their unrighteousness, and then something happened. They heard the gospel of Jesus Christ, and they repented of their sins, they trusted in Jesus, and now they're not the same anymore. Of course they look the same, and they may do some of the same, have some of the same mannerisms, but they have been changed. They have a love for God that was not there before. That's the work of the Spirit. It's a spiritual process, one that cannot be physically seen, but it can. you can see the effects of it. So, that's Jesus answering the second question. Now we come to the third question. Now, if you remember, the first question was the unasked question. We had to go and figure it out, do a little work to figure out what he was asking. Though I think it was simple to figure out because of the answer Jesus gave. Second of all, there was a question for understanding. He was intrigued, so he wanted to understand a little more about it. Well, now we see a question that is different than the first two. The first question is, well, what does a person have to do to go to heaven or to be a part of the kingdom? That's seeking. Then you see the question, well, how can a person be born again? Well, that's also seeking understanding. The third question is not like the rest. This is the question of unbelief. Look in verse 9 with me. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Jesus answered. Now, first of all, how can these things be? When you go back and look at this question, how can these things be? Here's what Nicodemus is saying to Jesus. How in the world is this possible? How in the world can this be true? Are you sure? Are you serious? Are you joking with me? How can these things be possible? This is a question of unbelief. Nicodemus has already made up in his mind, this makes no sense. I can't figure it out. I can't see it. I can't touch it. I can't feel it. I can't understand it the way I want to. So therefore, this must not be true. This must not be real. This must be a trick of some sorts. And so he says, how can these things be? Then Jesus answered him, and notice, we know that this was a question of unbelief because of the answer that Jesus gives. Again, just as this is a different question than he had asked before, Jesus gives a different answer. Before then, before now, Jesus has been very gentle with Nicodemus. Jesus has been very, very gentle, very respectful, very courteous. But now notice what Jesus says. And I still don't think he was being mean, but notice what he says. How can these things be? Jesus answered him, 
Are you a teacher of Israel and yet you don't understand these things? You're the seminary professor, Nicodemus. You're the teacher. You're the religious leader. You're the politician. You're the one in authority. You're the one who should know. You've been to Israel Seminary. How can you not understand these things? Truly I say unto you, I say to you what I say unto you, we speak of what we know. Now Jesus said, I speak what we know. That means what you think is true is not true. Now I know you're smart, Nicodemus. And I know you have a very scientific mind, Nicodemus. And you want to see facts. But you don't know what you think you know. You don't understand what you think you understand. There are things in this universe that you don't have 100% a handle on. Uh, do you think you know everything about everything about everything in the universe? Well, any of us would have to say, even though no matter how prideful we may be, would have to say, no, I don't know everything about everything about everything in the universe. So there is something in this universe that we don't understand. Well, then is it possible that within that something in this universe that we don't understand that that could be the answer? <laughs> Of our spiritual questions. So here's what Jesus says. He said, Truly I say unto you, we speak what we know, and we bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. Who is our? You could, again, you could look at one or two things that this could be. This could be speaking of him, he, the Godhead, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Though I think that's doubtful because at this point, God the Father and the Spirit is not speaking audibly. It's Jesus and his disciples. When he says we, he's probably speaking about his disciples, which they may be here at this night. They may be here just keeping quiet. So anyway, he says, we speak of what we know. We speak of what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I had told you of earthly things and you do not believe, these are earthly things. These are, the, these are small things. These are things that you should be able to understand. If I speak to you about earthly things, I have, I have brought salvation down into a way that you can understand it. Very simple. If, you, if I can speak to you of earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? How can I get any deeper with you, Nicodemus? You don't even believe the simple things. You don't even trust me in the simple things that I'm saying. No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven. Jesus is saying, here's what Jesus is saying for Nicodemus. You think you have the answers, but you don't, buddy. I have the answers. The only person who knows these things is he who ascended and descended from the Father, and you're looking at him. That's me. That's Jesus, the King of kings and Lord of lords. I am the one with the answers. Now, people in this life may think they have all the answers. They may think they have everything figured out. And there's no way there could be any room for God or no way there could be any room for the spiritual new birth. But Jesus says, I'm the one with the answers. Listen to me. Hear me. Hear what I'm saying. Forget about what you've learned. Forget about what you've, how you've understood. And listen to the... To the teller of truth, which is Jesus himself. He is the son of man. And so Jesus is telling him this. He first of all, he said, he said, this isn't something you can understand naturally. This is something that has to be revealed to you supernaturally. And then he says, I'm the one who's going to reveal it to you. If you're going to believe it, if you're going to see it, if you're going to enter into heaven, it's going to be because I showed you the truth. That and that alone. And then Jesus closes this, this portion with this. Um, analogy from the Old Testament with this example from the Old Testament. Verse 14, as, G, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up and whoever believes in Him may have eternal life. 
He goes to, I believe it's Numbers 22. And in Numbers 22, we see a story. Remember, God had delivered the people of Israel from Egypt. He brought them across the Red Sea. He protected them. After years and years and years, the Bible says that their shoes, the same shoes that they were wearing, were the shoes that they left Egypt in because God protected them. God didn't let their shoes fall apart. God didn't let their clothes fall apart. God rained bread from heaven so they could eat. When they wanted meat, God sent birds down to fly where they could scoop them up and cook them and eat them. God provided everything they needed in a supernatural way. And yet after everything God did, they still complained. And they still murmured. And they still rejected everything God did. And then there came a day when they were murmuring against God. And God said, that's it. I've had it. I've had it. And here's what the Bible says God did. God sends fiery serpents into the midst of the people, into the camp. And they begin to bite the people. And this doesn't, I don't know what kind of snake this was. It may have been one that God created for the moment. I don't know. They call them fiery serpents. So I imagine that means when they bit you, it felt like you were on fire. And so anyway, these serpents begin to bite people. And the Bible says that they were dying. And then the people came to Moses and they said, We're sorry for what we've done. We're sorry for complaining against God over and over and over again and not believing God. Help us. Pray to God that God would stop this. Well, Moses went to God and here's what God said do. Sometimes we see these things happen in the Old Testament. We wonder, why did God do this? What sense does this make? Well, a lot of times those things are pictures of Jesus in the New Testament. So here's what God told Moses to do. He said, find a brass pole or find a long pole and then take some brass and mold it into the form of one of these serpents and put it on the top of the pole. And then you lift that pole up and you tell the people, whoever looks at this servant will live. If you won't look at the servant, you won't live. So if people say, well, that's just crazy. I've never heard it. We need medicine. We need some doctor to help us. Or we need God to just miraculously heal us. I'm not going to look at a serpent. I'm just going to whatever. Well, they died. There was no help for them because they rejected the help. But then those who by faith looked. And in looking, they were sorry for what they did. In looking, they were expressing faith in God. They looked to the serpent, and then all of a sudden, this fiery venom that was in their veins went away. It was gone after they looked. Well, we, we, we don't, what in the world does that mean? Why this example? Because on this day in John chapter 3, Jesus would use it as an example of himself when he said, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. On what? On a cross. On the cross. And be lifted up that whoever believes in Him would not perish. Will have eternal life. So that example in the Old Testament was a picture of what happened, what would happen with Jesus when as the serpent was lifted, the Son of Man will be lifted up on the cross that here is what you must do. Look and live. It's not becoming a good Baptist. It's not being baptized. It's not giving to the church. It's not any of those things. In fact, coming to Christ is nothing that you can do. It's not becoming a little baby, going back in your mother's womb and being reborn. It's nothing physical. Here's how you come to Christ. Here's how you see the kingdom. And here's how you can enter the kingdom. By looking to Jesus. And looking to Jesus alone. That's how we come. This morning we're going to be partaking in the Lord's Supper or in the communion. And in that it is a reminder. We see the bread, which is a picture of the body of Jesus that was broken. The juice, that is a picture of the blood that was shed for us. The Bible says without the shedding of blood there is no remission of sins. And so we're going to remember that. And we as believers in Christ who are part of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ are going to be able to look at, have some physical reminder of what Christ has done for us. 
Well, Jesus said, look and live. That's what you must do. I don't know the hearts of the people in here. I trust that everyone here is already trusted in Christ. You've already looked to Jesus and live, and you may need to pray for those family members, friends, or neighbors who you know that they're not looking to Jesus. However, you may be here this morning and you may have said, you know what? I'm like Nicodemus. I'm religious. I'm respectable. But I've never looked to Jesus truly. I'm one of those people who may come for the signs or to see what, because everybody else is coming, but I've never truly trusted in Christ. Well, Christ stands ready. There he is lifted up. He's still lifted. He's not on the cross today. He's in heaven, but he's lifted up. And, and, and he says, come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. I will forgive you of your sins. I will cleanse you and I will put my spirit in you. I will make you a new person. You can be born again because of my power, not because of our works. So I would invite you to come to Jesus. I would invite you to heed the information that it seems that Nicodemus did not heed. Heed the message. Hear the gospel. Hear the word of God or pray for those who have it. Let's pray together. Father, Lord, we come before you in the precious name of Jesus.